Well, we certainly know about the terrible war going on over in Israel, and we certainly should be praying for them, God's chosen people. He certainly has a plan for them in the future, as we understand from Scripture. In speaking of war, uh, I'm reminded of Duffy Genegas, who when he was over there in Vietnam and getting bombarded and he really saw his life in the balances and even was wounded. It was at that point that he turned his life over to Christ. That's what he told me. And when I asked him, I said, well, were you aware when you say you turned your life over to Christ, do you mean you knew that he had died on the cross for your sins and that you were trusting him as your savior? And he said, yes. And he said that in such a contented way, um, even in his last days. Well, war is never good uh, unless you think of it that he uses it for his purposes and his will and to bring people to Christ. But, but war has been described by several expletives uh, over time. Well, Timothy is going to be admonished and charged to fight to fight a war, but it's the good war. It's the good fight. He is charged in fighting the good fight. As a pastor who is there in Ephesus and to guard against false teaching, to teach true doctrine, to eventually lead the church in having the correct behavior that they ought to have biblical, this is what Paul has said to him to fight the good fight. And to be very honest with you, not only is that the title of this sermon, but it is, in my own mind, one of the key ideas of 1 Timothy. In fact, I've entitled the entire book as Fighting the Good Fight in the Church. This morning, we're going to look at several things here. We're going to go back and uh, finish up on some of the other verses, but we're going to look at three things about fighting the good fight that we're going to see in these passages. We need to fight the good fight and give out the message of grace because Paul talks about Christ's patience with him, the foremost of sinners, in saving him. And so we fight the good fight in giving out that message that it's a message of faith alone and Christ alone and not what good works. It's not at all what is taught in the Bible. Secondly, we fight the good fight when we know that God is the God of grace. There were false teachers in the church talking erroneously about the law. Paul said the law is good. If you use the law lawfully, love that play on words, if you use the law lawfully, meaning it shows us our sin, it leads us to Christ. It leads us to the grace of God. And Paul is going to give a doxology to this God of grace. And so that also is fighting the good fight. And then finally, we're going to see prophecies for ministry. Timothy has been called into the ministry. There had been prophecies and prophetic utterances, I believe, affirming not only what his ministry will be, but also what some of his spiritual gifts would be. And so when we think about fighting the good fight, not just for pastors, but for all of us 
to be using our gifts, to be involved in some ministry, to fight the good fight, to share the gospel of grace, and to confound the false gospel that says you have to do good works in order to be saved. So that is what we are going to look at this morning. So turn with me, if you would, to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 16 through 18. I know it seems as if we're in the middle of a changing thought, and that's okay. When I, to be honest with you, when I got to verse 17 in my studies, I love to talk about the attributes of God, and I, I thought we need to slow down and we need to look at these. We need to look at always the attributes of God, for that's whom we have come to worship. We've come to worship him for who he is. Not for whom we would like him to be, but for who he is and all of his attributes. And it says, yet for this reason, I found mercy. Paul says, so that in me, as the foremost, reflecting back where he said, I am the foremost of sinners, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him. For eternal life. And then we see Paul just almost not able to help himself, although under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, give this doxology to the God of grace. It's not just a doxology, it's to the God of grace that we've been talking about. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be glory and honor forever and ever. Amen. And then there is a little bit of a segue here where he's going to talk about Timothy and Timothy's ministry, but it all fits together. Timothy has been called to stay on at Ephesus to guard against the, these false teachers and teach correct doctrine. And that is what Paul is going to say so that by them you fight the good fight. It says this command... I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. With that, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, I thank you for your word. And I thank you that your word is not a drop in the bucket, but it is an ocean of truth. I do pray, Father, that this morning I can give more than a drop in the bucket, that I could somehow, Lord, through the Holy Spirit and through the teaching of the Word, give us the vision of who you are, that we might worship you, that we might know you as the God of grace, and that we might share this message of grace with others. And we'll thank you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I just want to walk you through the. I want to walk you through the the context of this, and I, I must say, in one sense, it's a little hard to to stay on the context. One might think that Paul's just talking about some subject here, and then the next thing is another subject, almost like the book of Proverbs, where there's a proverb and then another proverb of a different subject. But it's not; it all fits together. Let me see if I can't put it together for you quickly. 
In verse 3, it was where he told Timothy, I'm leaving you in Ephesus so that you instruct these false teachers. It is the idea that they're teaching falsely and they are in the church. We, we do our best to keep false teaching outside, but sometimes it comes in, either in a major way or in a slight way. And Timothy was called, indeed, to instruct them. Paul goes into this a little bit more, and he talks about one of the things that they're doing is they're teaching about the law erroneously. And you, it doesn't say exactly how they're doing it, but from the context of the New Testament, they are teaching probably very similar to the group that's called the circumcision. Yes, you have to believe in Christ, but you also have to do something else. You also have to keep the law. You also have to do a good work. Or in the case of the circumcision, that's the name of their, their false movement, you have to also be circumcised. When you're talking to Gentiles, Gentiles, yes, you believe in Christ, but you need to be circumcised to be saved. And Paul is saying that's absolutely wrong. And then he says, but the law is good. There is a reason for the law. And that reason, of course, is to reveal sin, lead us to Christ, lead us to grace. And Paul begins to talk about the gospel of grace then. So there is a real connection. And then he says, I have been called. Paul says, I have been called into the ministry as an apostle to preach this gospel of grace. And you're going to see that he's now going to put that back on Timothy. Timothy, you're here to preach the gospel of grace. But before he does that, he says, let me tell you something. If it was about the law, I would be saved. You can't be saved by the law. And he talked about his former life, how he persecuted the church, how he blasphemed against Christ, how he fought against Christ and persecuted Christ. And he said, and yet, though I'm the foremost of all sinners, Christ forgave me. And that's the message that anyone, anyone can be forgiven. The vilest offender who truly believes the, the gates of heaven are open up in forgiveness. And by the way, I just want to say that also speaks of Paul's humility because Paul in one scripture said he was the least of the apostles, very humble. Then he said he was the least of the saints but now he's just gone wild and said, I am the foremost of sinners. And we do believe that one of the reasons is that this bothered him his entire life, that he was a persecutor of the church. In fact, Christ said, why are you persecuting me by persecuting the church? And it's not that he ever was guilty and, and wasn't sure if he was going to heaven. He knew that he was forgiven. But the more he understood about the truth of it, the more he was so grieved about how he aggressively persecuted believers who were of the way, of the truth. And Paul then really had this desire to fill up what was ever lacking in Christ's afflictions. And so we come to this, and in verse 16, he's going to say, yet for this reason I found mercy. So, so it all does connect. It, it is this idea of grace. And in particular at this point, it's the message of grace. Or I'm going to say it this way. It's patience in salvation. Christ's patience with Paul 
and every sinner waiting for them to come to give them salvation. Or better yet, drawing them to come to salvation. So let's pick it up then in verse 16. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now, there is a little reference here. He said, for this reason, I found mercy. Well, let's just go back to the verse previously, verse 15. And notice what he says in verse 15. He says, it's a trustworthy saying, deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. And what he says in there, he says, is that the reason for this was that he did this in ignorance of unbelief. Now, it's not getting away with sin, but that whole idea was there is a difference in Scripture, although sin is sin, okay? Sin is sin. And sin comes from our sinful nature. It's not we sin and, oops, sorry, I'm basically good, but I've sinned. It comes from our sinful nature. Sin is sin. But there is a distinction. God does make a distinction in the Old Testament between unintentional sin with rebellious sin, sin of a choice, going headlong after sin. And maybe sin isn't unintentional. Maybe even we would even choose to sin, but it's not like all-out rebelliousness. And Paul said he just didn't know. In unbelief, he didn't know this was the gospel until Christ met him on the road to Damascus. And it's those two things that he says, yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, the foremost of sinners. The word mercy is a, a word worth stopping and looking at. It is a word that means to be greatly concerned about someone in need. Our need is our sin and salvation. And God was concerned about our need for salvation. It also includes words like compassion and pity. When we think about God provided salvation for us, it wasn't because how good we are or how, how well he thought we do in Christianity or how he could use someone like us in the kingdom. It was because he had pity on our helpless, sinful estate. And no better example than the Apostle Paul who was persecuting the church. And Paul says, but he did this in his will. In his sovereign will, he did this to show his perfect patience. And the, the idea of perfect patience here has the idea of something that's all-encompassing or, or whole. And so he is waiting for sinners to come. That is the idea. We, we see various uh, scriptures. Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. And then it says, verse 10, for you once were not a people, speaking of Gentiles, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. 
And so it is the idea of the patience of Christ. Now, we know that not all will come to Christ. We know that. But those who do, this is by the grace of God. This is, the, the great, this is what's so great about grace. Grace means we don't deserve it. But by God's mercy and compassion and pity, it was offered to us through Jesus Christ. By the way, what is the gospel? What are we talking about? Well, the gospel is very clear in the Bible. It's very simple. It first is with regard to God's holiness in contrast to our sinfulness. And so we will never have fellowship with God being sinners in this position that we are. But God so loved the world in spite of our sin that he gave his only begotten son. In other words, he sent his son who took on humanity to take our sins, to take our place, to take our punishment. Hallelujah. That's grace. God's riches at Christ's expense, G-R-A-C-E. And he died on the cross taking the punishment for our sins. And the moment that we come to Christ, the moment by faith we believe in him and believe by faith alone, not, well, hey, I'm pretty good, but for what I'm not good in, Lord, I'll just ask you to cover the rest. No, no. Our righteousness is but a filthy rag, as it says in Isaiah, like taking a filthy, greasy rag and trying to shine up a white Corvette. The moment you touch it with that rag that's so greasy and filthy, you mar it. And that's what our righteousness is. And so the moment we trust in Christ, his salvation is appropriated to us. We are forgiven and we have eternal life. That is is grace and that is his patience in salvation and it's all encompassing he's not wanting any to perish and so that's not his desire even though all men will not come even though i suppose you could say god could bring all men to salvation he's not wanting all men to to, to perish the idea is he, he he doesn't look forward to sending individuals to hell he is a God of grace, but it will happen. There will be those who will never come to Christ. But like Paul, we too are examples. Some of us better examples than others. By that I mean, if Paul was an example of grace because he persecuted the church, some of us were pretty good sinners before we came to Christ. Some came to Christ at a young age in a Christian home and and I can't imagine you getting into too much trouble. Maybe you stole candy or someone else's Hot Wheel or something like that. And, and, and again, all sin is sin. <laughs> but for those of us who came to Christ later in life, yeah, we stored up a lot of things that the wrath of God was against. But we all can say, no matter at what point we trusted Christ, this was by God's grace. We are an example and by the way, even if you are a believer who grew up in a Christian home and you, you came to Christ at a young age, you know, as you grow in the Lord, as you grow and understand what sin is and how terrible and repulsive that is to God, you realize you have that sinful nature, whether, whether the worst thing you ever did was steal a Hot Wheel car, although I know that's not true. But uh, the idea is, is that you, you, you begin to see the sinfulness of sin. 
and you realize the grace by which he used to save you. And then we go out and we share, not as I'm better than you, but I'm an undeserving sinner who has received grace. Would you like to receive Christ as well? And this is the idea we have for demonstrating this perfect patience for those who would believe in him for eternal life. By the way, I'm happy to say that the scriptures teach not only are you forgiven the moment you come to Christ, but you are given eternal life. And that, that actually means eternal life right now. You have the Holy Spirit living in you, giving you life, spiritual life. But you also have a promise for heaven. And you're eternally secure. We could show verses on that, and we have many times. But I want to continue on what we're doing here. That also... That also, that security is also part of the salvation of grace. If it was dependent on you or me, I, I'd already have lost it like a million times. And so would have you. But it's not dependent on me. It's, it's dependent upon the perfect work of Christ, who not only died for our sins, but has imputed his righteousness to us. God sees us in the righteousness of Christ, but God... The righteousness of Christ, but God, the righteousness of Christ. Beloved, that is salvation, and it's a salvation of grace. We don't deserve that. Paul was an example of God's patience in salvation. And then, how could he not? How could he not break forth into praise to the Lord? And we see this from time to time. We see the psalmists often do this. And we see other people uh, that write and then they break into praise. Now, again, it's under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But I believe he's using, using their own heart. I, I would dare say that we do that or should do that. There ought to be times, whether in devotions or in prayer or whether in coming to church and in hearing something, that it just blesses you and you just want to praise the Lord because of it. That, beloved, is normal Christian living. That's what ought to be happening. That is a doxology. And that's what we're about to see now. Praise to the God of grace. And I want to spend a little time in this. I want to spend a little time in verse 17. Uh, I, I, I think... Whenever we get to the attributes of God, we should slow down. But there is a real reason why we should do that in this verse. We'll explain in just a moment. It is now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This is a doxology because it gives honor and glory to God. And we see certain doxologies in the scriptures, uh, some of them by the Apostle Paul. How about in Romans 11? And, and you can imagine, so Romans 11, he's worked his way through Romans 1 through 10. All are under sin. But God demonstrated his love that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And then there's the idea of now we can live in newness of life through the Holy Spirit. That there's therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And that God is good to his promises. And the promises that he made to Israel, he's going to keep. 
It's a tremendous thing. And that means that as Gentiles, the promises that he gave to you, he is going to keep. And you can't keep it in anymore. And finally it comes out. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Amen. Exactly. You get it. And Paul is doing that here in verse 17. It's a doxology. But I, I want to say that as I'm going to explain, go over some of the, the attributes, I think it's in the context of to the God of grace. It's in the context of salvation by grace. It's in the context of this is who he is as opposed to what those false teachers are teaching about that you could be saved through the law. That is the context of this. So I will not only look at what these attributes are, but I will try to apply them in the context of salvation. And the first one is that he is king. Now, it's very interesting because in the Old Testament, we see Yahweh is attributed with the title of king. And we see in the New Testament, we see Christ is attributed with the title of king. Revelations 19, 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, talking about his second coming because of what's going on in Israel. Everybody's talking about, could this be when the Lord is going to return? It could be, and it might not be. We don't want to suggest any dates because that's exactly what the Lord said we shouldn't do. But he is the king. And so uh, it can refer to both. I think here it's referring to God, God the king. And the idea here, I believe, is if he is the king above all kings, the only king in his kingdom, he makes up all of the rules and the laws of his kingdom. Laws, small l not capital L, not the law. He makes up the laws of the land. He makes up the laws of the land for what is true and righteous and holy and what is a violation to those things. But he also writes the law of the land of his kingdom of how one can be atoned for, not through works, but through Christ. And so he is the king, and the, the Greek word is basileus, and it means a royal monarch. Monarch means mono, one, arch, ruler, one ruler. He is the king, and he has the law of the land that in his kingdom, sin is sin. Sin will be paid for by the retribution of his wrath unless we come to Christ who he sent to die in our place. And by the way, it's a no-brainer, isn't it? And yet, and yet, we see we are spiritually dead. You have to be spiritually dead not to take an offer like that. 
And so we even need the grace of God to open our eyes to see that great offer in God's kingdom where he makes all of the laws of the land. And he instituted this idea of grace for sinners. But he also instituted one other thing as king. I mean, he decides who crosses the moat, who the drawbridge comes down, and they are allowed to enter. Who is allowed to enter into this kingdom? Those who are trying to be good enough by the law? No, the gate and the drawbridge is closed. Well, what about if I try to do good works and go to church, and those are all good things, but no, that doesn't save you. It doesn't remove sin. The only ones who can enter into his kingdom are the ones who come in through Christ. Christ is the door or the drawbridge, if you will. And all you have to do is think about John chapter 14, verse 6. Let's, let's turn there. John chapter 14, verse 6. You probably know it by heart, and I'm glad that you do. Jesus said to him, I, son of God, the God-man, I am the way and the truth. Don't be deceived any longer. Don't be confused any longer. He is the truth and the life, both spiritual life now as a believer in this life and also eternal life. And here it is. No one, well, well maybe one or two, no one. Well, surely there's a loophole. No one comes to the Father but through me. So I know at times people will say, well, you Christians think that you're, it's only, you have the only way. The truth is no. The truth is Christ has the only way. So if you want to, if you want to point fingers, point it at him. That's what he said, but it's the truth. Well, who, how does he get to, to, to determine that? Because he is the king, and this is his kingdom. And as king, he writes all the laws of the land. And you know what the law of the land is of our great God and king? It's the law of grace. The law of grace that we have received through Jesus Christ. Well, the next one is, is that he's eternal. And I, I, I often refer to this one, and we talk about this. When we talk about the deity of Jesus Christ, we turn to those verses that it shows that he is indeed eternal. We, we see that uh, in John chapter 1. We see that he is eternal as well, even though there came a time when he took on humanity along with his deity. But... What does it mean? Well, you know what it means. It means God is eternal. It means he's always existed. He's had no beginning, and he, has had, he will have no end. He is often described in Scripture that he is from everlasting to everlasting. Psalm 90, verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And we've, we've dealt with this. And it is hard to wrap your mind around how could he have always existed when everything we know in this world has had a beginning. 
Well, I'll tell you how. Very simply, the only reason that everything in this world has had a beginning, including you and me, is because there was one supreme being who was eternal. That's the only way it could be. The other way would be to say that there was nothing and God simply brought himself into existence. That which did not exist, existed. And that's illogical and absurd, isn't it? The only logical answer is that God is eternal. No beginning and no end. Well, how do we apply that to salvation? Well, as we said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him, notice it's believe. John uses the, the verb believe over and over. It's never believe and something else. Whoever believes in him, and believe means to trust. It just doesn't mean, oh, yeah, yeah, I, I subscribe to those facts. No, it's that you tr you're trusting him. You're believing in what he did on the cross will save you. And it will. That whoever believes in him shall not perish but have what kind of life? Eternal life. Not short-term life. Eternal life. How can he give us eternal life? Because he's the eternal God. Because he's always existed and will always exist. And there is a truth now that even though we have not always existed from the beginning, at this point we always will exist. The problem is you will either exist in heaven with God because you come through Christ or you will exist in hell in eternal punishment. Eternal is eternal, and it's eternal punishment. And so if we want eternal life, we must come through Christ. Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has what kind of life? Eternal life. And just in case we're not sure what he means by eternal life, and does not come into judgment. For how long? Eternally. Well, don't you think at some point in heaven he'll change his mind? No. Does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life, even now. The moment you trust Christ, you pass out of death, out of judgment, and you have eternal life now being regenerated by the Holy Spirit. And you live for him until you go home to be with him and you live eternally with him without sin, by the way. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. No more teasing the pastor, you know. I won't mention any names or that they're sitting in the California side. <laughs> Someone used that phrase the other day and I said, I'm going to coin that. We have a California side. I love the California side, by the way. And by, by the way, do you notice that you're on my right hand? It's the others that are on my left hand. Okay. All right. So we have eternal life through this eternal God, and his promises are eternal, and he's eternally present to always keep these promises. Well, next is he is immortal. And, and there is no doubt in my mind that as Paul is saying these, he understands these every bit as much as I'm explaining it. <laughs> and more, 
he, uh, it's not just he's putting words together and, you know, uh, this would be a nice thing to say on this thank you card, you know, to say that. No, I mean, he understands every word and every theological meaning of it. And, and, and uh, the Holy Spirit is leading him to write it. And certainly the Holy Spirit knows all about truth and the truth of each one of these attributes to God. He is immortal. Now, what does immortal mean? Doesn't mean he's a superhero, okay? Can I just say that? Doesn't mean he's a superhero. He's beyond a superhero. He's the king of kings. It means that there is no decay or death in God. It's not even possible. It's not even possible for God to die. If we were to think about what would happen if God would die, everything would cease to exist. Everything. Thank God, it's, he's immortal. It's impossible for God to die. But then how can Christ be our atoning sacrifice? He added humanity. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's what we celebrate. Christ adding humanity to his deity so that he could die on the cross in our place. You certainly know what scripture says. It says, for the wages of sin is death. His, it's either his death or our death that we're trusting in. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9, but we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. That means human. He, was, he, he added humanity. Let me add, it was perfect humanity, not sinful humanity like us. But he was made a little lower than the angels. That's where we stand right now. Namely, Jesus, because of suffering, the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Hebrews 2, 9. And so he is the immortal king who gives eternal life. And by the way, we have mortal bodies at the moment, but the resurrection is when we receive our immortal resurrected bodies. It says, in, in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trump, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed as well with imperishable resurrected bodies fitted for heaven. And the truth of the matter is, those who reject Christ will also have a type of resurrected body. It's a body that is fitted for hell. And, and I, I want to be very serious here. I know I joke around a lot, but I want to be very serious here. We hear peep the old adage say, well, I don't care. Send me to hell. You can only burn hamburgers so long. Well, no, wait a second. They're receiving bodies prepared for eternal punishment. Oh, man, do we not need to share the gospel? We need to not only be patient, but we need to be proactive. And that's what we have. And next we have the invisible. And I have to be honest with you. I've, I've taught the attributes of God many times. It's one of my favorite subjects in the Bible to teach. And I don't have this attribute included in my study. I'll be very honest with you, most theologies don't. 
in one sense, it's not mentioned because either one, it's, they, we would surmise it's so simple. It means he's unseen. We can't see him. But there is more to it than that, and it's, and it's, and it's, uh, it's deep. Now, I'm going to tell you what I believe, and, and reading, reading some of the commentaries of John MacArthur and others, I, 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 feel, I feel pretty good with, with what I believe, and, and I'll share that. Um, basically, if, if we're on the wrong limb, I'm not the only one going down, okay? But first of all, let's talk about this, in the invisibility of God, for just a moment. It does mean unseen. That's what the Greek word is. It's, it's ha-oratos. The, the, uh, has a negative, and haratos is visible. It's not, he's not visible, which means what? He cannot be seen with physical eyes. But a little further on, well, then what? We, what is he, or who is he, or how do we describe him? Well, I would describe him as a divine spirit being. Let's turn to John 4, 24. In John 4, 24, it's the Lord Jesus Christ who clarifies for us that God is unseen because he doesn't have a body or physical form. Because he is spirit. Notice what he says. God is spirit. And then he says, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. But let's talk about this idea of him being a spirit being. Being means he is a person. Each of the members of the Trinity are persons. It's one God in three persons. I, I, I don't understand it, but I believe it. And because I believe it, I don't struggle with it. And because I don't struggle with it, I do understand it, kind of, in a way. And it's one God, in essence, who subsists, whatever subsist means, subsists in three distinct persons. They're all beings. And it says here that God is a spirit being who doesn't have physical form. Now, what is interesting is, is the Lord Jesus Christ, one of his ministries is to become the visible manifestation of the invisible God. Not that God the Father looks like Jesus, but the being and the attributes and the actions and the words of the Lord Jesus Christ gives us some idea who the Father is. You remember when, when Philip said to Jesus, show us the Father and it will suffice? And Jesus said, didn't you have your V8 this morning? He said, how could I have been with you this long and still you're asking me the Father? He who has seen me has seen the Father. He's the visible manifestation of the Father intrinsically in his attributes and his nature. Colossians 1.15 says, He, the Lord Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God. So he is without form and void. Uh, he is without form, physical, is void of that. 
He is an immaterial, divine spirit being, and he's not limited. It means the good news is he's not limited by anything. He's not limited to material or by material, the material world that he created, which also made us physical bodies. But when we are resurrected, we are resurrected spirit, soul, and body. He's resurrecting us fully and completely, but he himself is spirit. Well, then, what's there for us to know? Who he is, what his nature is, what his attributes are. When Moses asked him, who shall I say sent me to the children of Israel? God said to Moses, I am who I am. Referring to his nature, referring to his attributes. That's who God is. What about his body? There is no body. He is spirit. But just because he's spirit doesn't mean he's nothing. He is the divine spirit being. He said, thus you shall, shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am who I am. And it causes us to be thinking about who he is. And we're even going to be moving towards worship now. Because when we come, we're not worshiping a physical form. We're worshiping God who is spirit for who he is. I mean, there's nothing physical for us to grasp onto. Actually, that's the work of idols and false religions. But true religion worships him for who he is and all of his attributes in, in doxologies of what we're talking about now. And by the way, his divine attributes are not only shown by Christ, but they're also shown by his work in creation. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen. Not physically seen of him, but we see his work, we see his faithfulness, we see his power by looking at creation. It's being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Well, I don't believe in God. You can't see him. I'm sorry, you're without excuse. I'm sorry that you aren't energizing yourself to see this. Uh, and I don't mean that in any spiritual way. What I mean is, is, you know, Farmers and ranchers believe in the existence of God because they see the seeds go in the ground and they see the, the, the produce of it and they realize it's a miracle and they attest that it's, it's from God. And so at least that much from creation, an unbeliever is required to see the existence of God. Any more than that, he's required to either see in Christ or see in the word of God, as the word of God reveals who he is. Well, where does it do that? Um, 1 Timothy 1.17, what we're talking about right now. 
uh, all of these things. And then we come to worship. When we worship, it means that we worship him for who he is. We worship I am. I am that I am and all that I am. And you should be learning who the I am is in your own personal life and devotions and study and in your study of the word of God here at church. You should be knowing him for who he is, not for whom you want him to be, not that great big grandfather in the sky. I know what grandfathers are like. I know what grandfathers are like, and sorry, our grandchildren can do no wrong. <laughs> oh, my word. Anyway, he is who he is with all of his attributes, his holiness, his righteousness, um, um, and, and even his, his wrath comes out of that. But also he's merciful and loving and compassionate. And so we hear the, the current culture in, in their measly expression and desire to know him and say he's a god of love and that's all he is oh my word oh my word you do not know who god is he is much more than that he is who he is and that's who we worship him for with the, the holiness as well as the love came across a quote this week and maybe this will help explain it To worship is to quicken the conscience by the holiness of God. To feed the mind is to feed it with the truth of God. To purge the imagination is to purge it by the beauty of God and all of his attributes and his glory. To open the heart is to open the heart to the love of God, the height, the depth, and to devote the will to serve is to devote it to the purpose of God as we know who he is and what his purposes are. And so when the rest of that verse says, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth, I, I understand there's some different interpretations only one of them is right uh, I, I agree with John MacArthur when John MacArthur says here the spirit is not a capital S it's a small s it's talking about the human spirit of a believer to worship him is to worship him of the heart it is not a dead worship we are like Paul to break out in doxologies I mean if you never break out in a doxology if nothing ever affects your soul Wow. You know, some people tear up every time they think about Christ dying on the cross for my sins. My sins. I know he died for your sins, but my sins. He died for my sins. This is the idea to worship him in spirit and then in truth. Not as I want him to be, but as, the, as creation reveals him, as the son of God reveals him, and as the word of God reveals him, that's how I worship him. And so I make no apology for taking a little extra time and talking about the attributes of God in verse 17, even though we're not moving very fast through the book of 1 Timothy, because this is why we're here. This is what this is about. It's to worship him, 
to worship him with our hearts and be moved, moved to wanting to serve him. And, and, and specifically also about the truth, you can't worship him if you don't know him. So you need to know Christ as your savior. You can't worship him if even as a believer you don't know that much about him. And this is where false worship comes from. Worship, worshiping him in the way that we think is acceptable. No, it's worshiping him in the only acceptable way that he tells us and that he gives us and reveals himself to us. And so maybe I'll add the invisibility of God in my study of the attributes of God. Finally, he says, only God, the only God. I think it suggests that there is no God beside him. That's what it suggests. There's no other king of the kingdom. There's no other laws of the land. And this is a law of grace. You don't have to worry about someone coming in, overpowering him. Not even Satan, who is a created being. He's not a member of the Trinity. He is not deity. He is a created being. Powerful, more powerful than us. Yet, there's no such thing as Oh my word, I wonder if God's going to defeat him. I wonder if Christ is going to defeat him. Christ has already defeated him on the cross, it says, and will defeat him literally in the future. There's no other God beside him. And you know, we've been going through the book of First and Second Kings, and they have been steeped in idolatry. The moment that the kingdom's divided... Because I didn't want to go down to the southern kingdom and worship in Jerusalem with those southern Jews, they made their own golden calf to worship. Idolatry. And then it spread to the southern kingdom. Many, most of the kings took the people into the worship of idolatry. This is a declaration against that sort of thing. But it's a declaration against any type of idolatry which puts anything or anyone above the only God. Only God is God only. Only God is the one to whom we need to know and find out about in order to have salvation. 1 Timothy 2, 5, we'll get there. For there is one God and one mediator, also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Only God. And then he makes this doxology a doxology. He puts the doxa in doxology. We, it goes on to say, here in this, be honor and glory. That's the only thing you could do when your heart says he is a God of grace. He has extended salvation to me. He has enabled me to trust Christ as my savior. I have been forgiven. I have the Holy Spirit. I am eternally saved. I have a home in heaven. Lord, I praise you. To you be the honor, not to me. To you be the honor. That's the only thing you could do. And we'll see that kind of heart worship in Revelation when we get it right, when we're perfect, when, when we don't have sin and selfishness interfering. 
and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, to him who lives forever and ever. Worthy are you, O Lord, our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might and any other adjective the Holy Spirit could give to the divine scriptures be to our God forever and ever. Honor, the word honor is the Greek word timē. Sounds like Timmy or Timothy. That is the same root for Timothy's name. Timē. Glory is the Greek word doxa. It's where we get doxology from. When we sing, when we sing a doxology, we give praise to him. And it's forever and ever. He is the eternal God, and so should his honor and glory be that is given to him from his creatures. He is to be eternally praised by believers, not because he's egotistical, but because you want to know why? No, two reasons. Number one, because it's right. Because there is no other being to whom we should give honor and glory to. And number two, when he saved us, he has given us the blessing of illuminating us that we see we, he is praiseworthy. And it blesses us when we praise him. It's putting it all together when we praise and honor him. And that will happen forever and ever. In fact, that's the same Greek word as the word eternal. Well, quickly then, verse 18. And so he moves from this, and you would almost think he's changing the subject now because now he's going to talk about Timothy's prophecies for ministry. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 18. This command I entrust to you, Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you fight the good fight. Well, this word for command would be better if we would call it the word charge. It's someone who's charged with something. You know, I'm charging you. You have been given these prophetic utterances about your ministry, and I'm charging you not only to keep those, but to fight the good fight. In fact, that is the context. What is he talking about when he's charging him? Uh, uh, about what? Timothy is in Ephesus as the pastor, and the very first thing Paul said was instruct these false teachers to stop teaching their false teaching in the church. And if need be, remove them. And secondly, to teach correct doctrine to teach the right doctrine, which is called orthodoxy. What these false teachers are teaching is heterodoxy. To teach them the correct doctrine. This is what has been entrusted to you. And it's summed up, I think, with the term fight the good fight. And so that's why I see that expression really part and parcel of the theme of the book of 1 Timothy. Now quickly, 
And I'm just going to touch on this a little bit, but what about these prophecies? What, what is this? Well, basically, in a nutshell, I believe it's when Timothy was thinking about joining or was asked to join Paul's ministry or, or said yes to Paul's ministry. You have leaders of the church and the apostle Paul who through God's divine revelation of the gift of prophecy at that time, a bona fide gift at that time, affirmed, yes, this is your calling, Timothy. You are to join Paul's ministry. And I think also, too, it was yes. And there was an affirmation from these prophetic utterances. In fact, we'll see this in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. We actually see it in 2 Timothy 1, 6. Paul refers to this several times. We actually see some of the spiritual gifts that, that Timothy has. And these prophetic utterances, I don't think it's that this is what, what gave these gifts to him. That's the Holy Spirit's work. I think it was that an affirmation. Uh, you know, on, on this level, with he's going to be in ministry with an apostle. We don't want to send out the wrong guy. And God, through these prophetic utterances of the leadership and also of Paul, affirmed he was to be in this ministry with Paul and to have spiritual gifts such as what? Evangelism, teaching, leadership, and I believe the gift of pastor or pastor teacher. We see each of those listed in the list of gifts. By the way, we are studying the Holy Spirit on Sunday mornings. At some point, we will be getting into the spiritual gifts, the ones that are listed in the Bible, the only ones that I know about, the only ones that I think are really count. And I've heard some wild renditions of the spiritual gifts that people thought that they had. But these are all listed, and we see certain things. In 2 Timothy 4, 5, I'll quickly read it. It says, Paul says to Timothy, but you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So we're thinking he's given the gift of evangelism. You know, Timothy sometimes gets a bad rap because of that verse about the spirit of timidity. And I believe he struggled with it, but I believe he overcame it. We showed in our introduction of the book of Timothy how Timothy grew. Has, he went from sharing the gospel to teaching, to preaching, and even to leadership where Paul leaves him in Ephesus because Paul had to go on. And Paul says, I need you to stay here, pastor this church, and you need to get rid of the false teaching and teach correct doctrine. That's what a good pastor should do. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 13, he says, Until I come, give attention to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, which could mean preaching, and teaching. So I, I think he's talking about this ministry of preaching and teaching. Of leadership, administration, it is in, in, in one sense that he had the gift of administration. You have to have some of that. Uh, you think of elders, you know, the elders have to have some of that. Or at least one elder on the board has to have it. Thank you, Dave. <laughs> he says, 
But in case I am delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Teaching these things, administration and leadership. And then finally, I think the gift of pastor. John MacArthur says he's pastoring the church there at Ephesus, that Timothy is, and, and I think that he is, um, although he will join up with Paul again. We read in Ephesians that Christ gave some as apostles to the church, some as prophets to the church, some as evangelists to the church, and some as pastor slash teacher. It's really one office. If you're a pastor, you better be a teacher. Because there's no other way to grow and shepherd a church. And we read here, first thing that Paul says, As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, heterodoxy. And then he says, Timothy, my son, means that I believe he led Timothy to the Lord. We discussed that in our introduction to Timothy. Timothy, my son, in accordance with the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by those prophecies, I, I, I think, I, you know, it doesn't go into great detail, uh, and I think we put the clues together correctly, that by them you do what? Fight the good fight that you fight the good fight. Literally, if you're looking in the Greek, it's that you might keep on fighting the good fight. There it is. There's no giving up. And, and you know what? This fight has intensified. Has it not in our day and age? Oh, my word. You know, one time I wanted to be in missions and be a missionary. Uh, not anymore. I dug my feet in here because we need it here. We need to stand the biblical ground now. To keep on fighting. And by the way, this isn't just to Timothy. I mean, I think the interpretation is to Timothy. But there are secondary applications. I think it would apply. It should apply to every pastor who gets in the pulpit. You ought to humbly take this as his duty. But I also think every believer. This is every believer. Remember we just said that if you're a believer, you're in ministry of some sort, of somehow. Well, what, what does that ministry do? Fight the good fight. And it's a good fight. That's the word. Intrinsically, it's good. It's not a bad fight like the wars that go on. This fight is noble. It's virtuous. It's spiritual. What is it? It's the duty to protect and proclaim the divine message of grace. That's the fight. That's what the context has been teaching us. And quickly for my final applications, if you will, what would that be in detail? Well, let me tell you, based on this context, it is somewhat repeating it, but I'm trying to summarize it here for us. Drive it home. Fighting the good fight would include instructing, correcting, and preventing false teaching in the church. Almost every New Testament letter talks about that problem, false teaching coming in. Secondly, it would be preaching not only the gospel, but the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone. It, even at Duffy's funeral, 
I, I, because of studying First Timothy, I felt like I needed to say, you know, there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the gospel is. Many people believe it's by doing good works. I, I, I really felt like I needed to say that because that is the problem. That's the two religions, the religion of grace alone through Christ alone or the religion of Christ plus works or just works. And so preaching the gospel of grace through faith in Christ alone, that's what we're learning. Teaching the proper understanding of the law in the light of grace. The law is good if you use it lawfully. Teaching correct biblical doctrine in the church. That's what Timothy needs to be doing. And then leading the church in proper conduct within the church. You know, make sure we're going in the right direction. So to sum it up, to sum it up, it is fighting the good fight in the church. The good fight for grace is to protect and proclaim God's message of grace. It is the duty of ministry. It's the duty of ministry to which not only every pastor has been called, but to which every believer has been called. And so, as we're embarking on our study, let us make sure that we are keeping on fighting the good fight. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, Lord, that... I pray, Lord, that out of this, Lord... We understand that we worship the invisible God. We un we, we're not worshiping something physical. We're worshiping the divine spirit being you, God, the only God. And we're worshiping you for who you are. Forgive us if we've ever had ideas about you that were wrong and not biblical and not what you've revealed and worshiped you falsely. May we worship you as a holy and righteous God just as much as we worship you as a loving and merciful God. But Father, as believers, we get to worship you in all that you are. And we love you, Lord. We adore you, Lord. And we thank you from the bottom of our hearts singing doxologies. Thank you for saving us through Jesus Christ and him alone. And it's in his name we pray, amen.